What I think the four general groups I'm about to talk about have in common is the attempt to focus people on collective rights or those positive liberties we talked about in podcast three at the expense of individual civil political rights or those negative liberties. So rather than detailing the limitations on citizens, the U.S. Constitution explicitly details the limitations on the federal government. This is a key and vital reason for the need to deconstruct the Constitution. It's much harder to control people in 50 different states, each with their own and often different laws or political values, than it is to control them from a single source of centralized power and influence. Welcome back, my friends, to the new suffrage movement. We have a society to save, and I'm Dr. Dave Ellis, hoping to provide some ideas on how we can emphasize the principles that unite us and restore the critical center in our culture and politics. Okay, in the last podcast, I spent a decent amount of time talking about Gramscian Marxism. But the approaches that go into deconstructing the U.S. constitutional system are now pretty well known, and they include a much broader uh, group of uh, approaches that include postmodern and post-structural analysis, linguistic analysis, education theory, sociology, and political theory. Now, what that means is the ideas are pretty well developed, and uh, there are a lot of other groups beyond the Marxists and common communists and critical theorists who can use these ideas for their own purposes. Um, I actually think those of us hoping to secure our civil political rights need to understand the social construction of reality and unapologetically reconstruct our history and the narrative of the moral order created by our constitutional system. That is, we have to take these ideas and use them ourselves to fight back. We can't simply wish these ideas away because there is meaningful social science behind them and they are being weaponized against us as a result. We can't afford to be disarmed in the cultural arena because as we learned in the last podcast and as we can feel right now, culture ultimately gets reflected in our politics. So deconstruction is in the end about language, our words, our terms, our phrases, and their meanings, and how they construct reality. Language is now recognized as the precursor for creating social structures. So constructing them, those social structures, reconstructing them, and deconstructing them all rely on the use of language. So if words and language are the building blocks of our reality, then you can imagine why there's so much discussion right now about misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. In my opinion, Beware of anyone who obsesses over these terms because their instincts are probably rooted in controlling people, irrespective of their motives. I think in part, uh, the problem we're having right now is that there isn't a single group seeking to deconstruct the U.S. constitutional order. My own analysis, um, I think, suggests that there are four different groups with different objectives, but each playing off the others, not necessarily in any kind of planned or coordinated way, but their um, interests do overlap. Now, the initial question is inevitably going to be, are all four groups acting as a conspiracy? I honestly think the answer is probably no. Uh, it is possible for groups to have interests that intersect and common objectives while not really being in a conspiracy. 
Um, in social movement theory, this is called affinity group politics, or in some cases, some scholars call it franchising. Basically, we have common objectives. Let's work together, create social mass, and see what we can get done. Now, in the academic and scientific context, however, there is something called uh, an epistemic community or a network of knowledge-based experts. So think of it as groupthink. Um, so th in the scientific and policy worlds, there are these uh, uh, environments where groupthink becomes very concentrated. And so it's not necessarily that there's a conspiracy. It's just everyone thinks this is normal and the way things ought to be. So it is uh, a similar or shared perspective that drives behavior. Now, it is useful to remember that perspective itself is rooted in language. So is the knowledge we get through news and entertainment in the making of our imagined community. And we talked about conscientization or making people or making the oppressed conscious of their oppression as a way to change perspective and therefore lead to cultural and political change. What I think the four general groups I'm about to talk about have in common is the attempt to focus people on collective rights or those positive liberties we talked about in podcast three at the expense of individual civil political rights or those negative liberties. So each one of these groups has some interest in overcoming the uh, civil political rights for whatever their own purposes might be. Now, the U.S. Constitution ratifies the rights of the individual with respect to the federal government. It is a limitation on the federal government by sovereign citizens um, as represented through their states. So rather than detailing the limitations on citizens, the U.S. Constitution explicitly details the limitations on the federal government. This is a key and vital reason for the need to deconstruct the Constitution. It's much harder to control people in 50 different states, each with their own and often different laws or political values, than it is to control them from a single source of centralized power and influence. That is, it's harder to bring coercion to bear coherently across that many different political systems. All right, so let's talk about the four groups. The first group consists of a class of global governance-oriented elites. So, okay, what does that mean? Uh, what I mean by that is that they see the world in terms of global challenges requiring some form of government or loose governance that might be enforceable laws or norms at the global level. Countries in this view are actually a problem for the same reason as the U.S. Constitution. There is simply too much political and economic difference to overcome, which slows down their overall efforts. The underlying philosophy of this group goes back decades. It was part of my international relations program, and I'll talk about it um, in subsequent podcasts. But this group really became a coherent social movement of elites after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. This is, in my opinion, the most important and influential of the groups we should be concerned about. This group is skillfully revealed, I think, by Joel Kotkin in his recent book, uh, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, a warning to the global middle class. Now, what Kotkin identifies is an emerging class of international elites and technocrats 
uh, people who are uh, specialized in their part of the uh, bureaucracy. So they're called technical bureaucrats or technocrats. The oligarchs were made possible by the fall of the Soviet Union, the 30-year foray into economic globalization, and cultural cosmopolitanism underpinned by this academic, intellectual, cult of the expert, um, uh, and media, what he calls clerisy. So the oligarchs are a network of hyper-rich people who have more knowledge of and sentiment for the great political, cultural, and economic capitals of the world, but who don't really know their own national interiors. They do not identify as nationals as such, but as truly global corporate citizens who are stewards of the environment and protectors of intergenerational interests, meaning our descendants who can't speak for themselves in our current industrial era. As such, they are arbiters of the long-term well-being. What Joel Kotkin um, suggests is that the oligarchs and the clerisy believe themselves to be smarter, more expert, and wiser than the masses, and they feel the need to force their ignorant compatriots toward the enlightened outcomes that they would otherwise block, and block usually with their own selfish vote. As a result, the new peasantry, the economically declining middle and lower classes, will have few to no resources to challenge the oligarchs and clerisy. Now, the political science literature shows overwhelmingly that democratic systems rely on an economically vibrant middle class, especially one capable of making alliances with working class and otherwise agricultural communities. Kotkin's analysis is consistent with the rich literature on environmentalism, human rights, social movements, and international relations more broadly. And these topics uh, will be discussed in subsequent podcasts. But I do believe there's a lot to the metaphor that he's developed with this neo-feudalism. Now, the second group is the classical Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, and even anarchist left that has persisted in these various forms since the mid-1800s. These groups are dedicated entirely to the elimination of capitalism and the subordination of individual-oriented civil political rights to collectivist, economic, social, cultural, and environmental rights. While they claim to be working for some utopian version of, quote, radical democracy, they believe they have to quash the existing cultural practices to make this utopian society possible. And this is what we talked about with Gramscian Marxism in the last podcast. Uh, The revival of this group was um, made possible, again, through their long march through the education system, the entertainment system, the legal system, and more recently, the media system. After the Cold War ended, we thought the communists were pretty much gone, but they actually had their own self-sustaining system here in the United States and throughout the West more broadly. Critical theorists derived from this group And by skillfully employing postmodern linguistic techniques, they have rapidly disseminated collectivist ideologies throughout American society, most notably recently through uh, race, gender, and queer theory that we talked about uh, briefly last time. Their efforts in many ways have informed the activities of the oligarchs since the Occupy Wall Street movement circa, um, uh, what, 2008-2009 which is why there appears to be an overwhelmingly leftist hue to the current deconstructionism, even at the international corporate level. 
The third group consists of the U.S.'s strategic adversaries, namely the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and Vladimir Putin's Kremlin. Now, neither the CCP or the Kremlin want to fight the United States, but they recognize the potential for causing its internal collapse or foreign policy and military paralysis resulting from internal political disputes. The more we see each other as the enemy, the less we're able to focus our collective power on them. The Soviet Union proactively cultivated communist opposition within the U.S. decades ago, so the Kremlin knows pretty well our social fault lines. And for about the past 20 years, the CCP has had agents of influence active across the U.S. institutions. Uh, this includes powerful think tanks, universities, and investment houses, among others. And it is now common to recognize their cultural and political influence across the U.S. at even the municipal or state levels, not just the national or federal levels. It is likely that both of these actors have amplified the fringes of American politics to make the fear of uh, political and radical conflict more present than um, our daily interactions with one another, as Americans would actually indicate. My bet is that you generally have very nice interactions with your fellow Americans, very few actual political um, fights. That is, uh, the CCP and the Kremlin think they can pull the threads of our organic crises, as Gramsci would say, um, and amplify the presence of this idea of American political um, uh, extremism. The fourth category consists of the Islamist social system funded by both states and private citizens. Now, although this social system only started to coalesce in the 1970s, there has been a pretty significant demographic diffusion of Muslims across the West, uh, driven in part by economic opportunity and other parts political oppression, but there has been a significant uh, diffusion across the West. Um, now, we focus mostly on the terrorism, uh, of the Wahhabi or Salafi jihadi kind, um, and that is something to be concerned about. But there are political movements as well that have the same underlying ideology. And so um, there is an interest in under eroding those uh, classic civil, civil political rights by some of these groups. And uh, it's interesting to note that a lot of the most active cultural ones uh, did receive some of their insight and, and inspiration from Gramscian Marxism uh, because they were focused as well on cultural restoration uh, for the, the uh, Islamist political revolution. So there's an alliance of convenience between um, the leftists and the Islamists. It shouldn't be surprising. They don't really have much in common with the oligarchs aside, this desire to deconstruct the negative liberties-based political order. Now, if you think this sounds a little outlandish, let me just say that a few months ago in September 2022, nine student groups at the University of California, Berkeley, voted to create Jewish free zones. They were led by the um, group Berkeley Law Students for Justice in Palestine, and were joined by the Berkeley Law Muslim Student Association, Middle Eastern and the North African Law Students Association, the Women, W-O-M-X-N of Color Collective, and Queer Caucus, among others. Again, future pod uh, podcasts will explore each of these four groups in more detail, 
But the question must be answered, why would these groups find it valuable to deconstruct the constitutional foundation of the American political order? In short, under normal circumstances, American culture, that is the existing hegemony, replicates American capitalism and the fidelity to civil political rights which capitalism requires to survive. If faith in the Constitution goes away, so too do the protections afforded by it, including our rights to vote meaningfully and to have free speech. But deconstructing a political order takes a great deal of effort, and this is why a new suffrage movement reinforcing existing American values can win the day, so long as we reach out to each other with love, liberty, and light. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard or are interested in learning more, please subscribe, comment, and share with your friends. Have a wonderful day.